I'll be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 1, starting with verse 5 through 17. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now I'll be reading verses 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Verses 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Thank you, Vicki. You guys must have known that I can't read that well. She did a great job. Well, for those that don't know me, my name is Tim Bedall, and I serve as uh, the teaching pastor at the Sugar Grove campus, and it's great to uh, be with you this morning. I wish it was under better circumstances, uh, but I'm uh, incredibly uh, grateful to have the opportunity to fill in for my brother, Travis, who is a great friend of mine and, and uh, one who I, I love very dearly, and to help him out. And him and Melissa this week uh, is, a, is just a, a privilege for me to do that, to show my love and affection to them. And so I'm glad to be here this morning. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer this morning? Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we come with grieving hearts. Lord, first as a church, as Lord, we grieve with those who grieve. And Lord, the loss of a pregnancy is never easy. And so Lord, our hearts are are grieved at the news of Travis and Melissa and this pregnancy, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would be with them, that you would surround them. Father, that you would uh, give them unspeakable grace uh, this morning as they, uh, together uh, as a family, and Lord, as they continue to serve you and honor you well with their lives. Lord, we grieve as a nation. Lord, it's unspeakable the evil that was put on display this week. Lord, the loss of so many innocent little children and their teachers. Lord, it's evil personified. But God, I am so thankful you are still on your throne. I am so thankful that you did not leave us in this sin. But Lord, the whole story of Christmas is that You came, that You might bring light into a world of darkness. And so Lord, amidst such tragedy, my heart is warmed by Your love and Your affection for Your people. That You are the one who brings hope. And Lord, how I propose that we would be speaking on the subject of 
Elizabeth and her life, a life for so many years was lived in a sense of maybe hopelessness. That your answer was not yes to her prayers, but for a long time it was no. But Lord, we see what happens when we honor You, that even though maybe our prayers may not be answered, that You bless us and You watch over us. And so Lord, I pray that Your Word would speak to us this morning, that Lord, it would give us hope this Christmas. Because you came, hope came into a world of darkness. Light came to overtake the darkness. And in this week of darkness, Lord, we pray that your light would shine brightly through your word and through the proclamation of it. And Lord, I pray through the people of this fine church. So Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and that you would, through me, give a message of hope this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You would grab your Bibles if you haven't already and your outlines. We begin a new series that the preaching team put together, focusing in on the three wise women of Christmas. A lot of uh, props are given to the three wise men, and we thought it would be good to spend some time focusing in on the life of Elizabeth this week. Next week, Travis will share on uh, the story of Mary. And then, of course, on, uh, almost said Good Friday, it's not Good Friday time yet, but Christmas Eve, we will look at the life of Anna. And we're going to see how God impacted each of their lives, how He ministered to them, and we want to pull some truths from their lives into our Christmas celebration this year. And so we come to the life of Elizabeth, and I will tell you that I put this message title together long before Friday's events. I think God has a word for us amidst it, and that is that when we look at the life of Elizabeth, we see hope amidst hopelessness. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about hope in Christ in a world of hopelessness. It's not hard for us to think back to this week and feel a sense of hopelessness. It's not hard for us to look at uh, children fleeing for their lives and not get a sense that the world's a dimmer place than it was just a couple days before. As we embark on this journey, though, what we begin to find ourselves doing is we find ourselves looking at the events of that first Christmas, and we start putting together, as we read from Luke, kind of a hallmark special of Christmas, that everything's fine and dandy. It's as if Thomas Kincaid has come and drawn and, and painted this beautiful portrait of a city, maybe in Vermont or somewhere, quietly nestled in the hill country with the smoke coming from the chimneys where all is well. But brothers and sisters, that's not the case of the first Christmas, and that's not the case in our life today. Because we are told in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Luke, notice the context of what is going on in that first Christmas. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, Let's just stop there and get some context this morning. Israel's being led by a capable and strong leader. But the problem with this wasn't that he wasn't capable as a king. It wasn't that he didn't have the leadership abilities as a king. But the problem was is he was a sinister king. He was a sinful king. He was a king that would rule with an iron fist. He was a king that would kill both family and foe alike. During this time, Israel wasn't on its own. It was under the reign, just like dozens of other regions in in the world, under the rule of Rome. So it wasn't a country that could do what it wanted to. It had to do what its oppressive government was doing for them. This was not a nice time. This was not a fun time. But at least the people people of God could count on their God. No doubt they could look to their God and say, well, God is with us. And God is speaking to us, but sadly so that first Christmas, it had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people. 400 years since the last prophet had said, thus saith the Lord. 400 long years since God's people had spoken with their God. It was a time of hopelessness. It was a time of despair. And because of King Herod, we will find out it was a time of great distress where the world seemed to have no hope. Now superimpose that over our lives today in the year 2012, 
And we see not much has changed since that first Christmas. A time of carnage. A time where it seems that our government is useless at times to be able to deal with the problems that are before us. I found these words uh, just the other day after the shootings by Max Lucado, who I think does a nice job of connecting our week this last week to the story of Christmas. Listen as I share it. This world seems sure dark this week, Jesus. I'm looking for any silver lining I can find, but they seem dimmer lately. These killings, Lord, these children, the innocence violated, the raw evil demonstrated, the whole world seems to be on edge. We seem to be trigger happy. We seem to be ticked off. We hear threats of chemical weapons and nuclear bombs. Lord Jesus, are we really one push button away from annihilation? Your world seems a little bit darker this Christmas, Jesus. But weren't you born in the dark? Didn't you come at night? Weren't the shepherds night shift workers? Didn't the wise men follow a star? Your first cries, baby Jesus, were heard in the shadows. To see your face, your parents, Mary and Joseph, needed a candle's flame or the flame of a fire. You came when it was dark. Dark with Herod's jealousy. Dark with Roman oppression. Dark with poverty. Dark with violence. Herod would go on a killing rampage, killing innocent babies. Joseph would have to take you and your mother into Egypt. You would find yourself an immigrant before you would ever be called a Nazarene. Oh, Lord Jesus, you entered into a dark world that first Christmas. And oh, Lord Jesus, would you enter into our world today? We, like the wise men, are looking for a star. We, like the shepherds, are looking for peace on earth and goodwill towards all men. Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you heal us? Would you help us? Would you allow us to be born anew in you? And Max Lucado ends his devotional for Friday as this. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you come and bring us hope in a hopeless world? God has brought hope, amen? He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we can see that hope. And I'm so glad for the scriptures that show us an aged woman who had hope amidst all hopelessness. And today I want to look at amidst all the pain and heartache that she had, she would be a woman who would serve and honor God no matter what God brought her way. I want to look under three headings this morning. I want you to look at her devotion, her disappointment, and her determination to trust God. And I pray it will be a blessing to you this morning. So let's jump right in to her devotion to God. Verses 5 through 7 as read so eloquently for us this morning. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, we're not told much about Zechariah at all. We are told that he marries a woman named uh, Elizabeth. She is the daughters of Aaron. That's a cool lineage. She got on Ancestors.com. And she found out, hey, my great-great-granddaddy was Aaron, brother of Moses. That, that's pretty cool. And by the way, you've got to add a whole bunch more greats to that great-granddaddy. But I'm short on time. But we know nothing of Elizabeth's early life. We know that she came from a line of priests. So her family, her parents, her grandparents uh, were people that helped with the priesthood of Israel. We don't know anything about her siblings. We know nothing about her early childhood life. We don't know her likes or dislikes, but we are told at some point in her life she marries a man whose name is Zechariah. She marries her dad in many ways because her dad was a priest and now she marries Zechariah. He's a priest. And then we are told that they get married, but we're not told much more about it. We're not told what Zechariah does. Now, his full-time job is unknown to us. The priest, the kind of priest that Zechariah was, he says he was a, a priest in the division of Abijah. What that meant was a division was 24 men who would oversee the local God-fearing community of the Israelites. And so just like this, we would have, as we do with elders, a group of men who oversee the duties of, of serving the people of God and, and serving God as we come together. And so Zechariah was one of 24 men who had a duty-bound job, if you will, to come and to serve God in that way. But notice what isn't articulated in our text. 
What isn't articulated is all of the other things surrounding Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. And let me ask you a question this morning. If Luke was writing not about Elizabeth, but about you this morning, what would he write? What would he say? Would he talk about your job and how you are a man or a woman of influence? When you walk into the office, people look and say, there's Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. They're really important. Would they write about your wealth and your investments, how you have made all kinds of money in the stock market or through real estate, that you're a person of great wealth? Would they speak of you as a person who is known for great athletic skills and great accolades when it comes to the athletic fields? Or would they talk about your education? Maybe all the letters behind your name or before your name, all the advanced degrees and all the knowledge that you contain, is that what Luke would write about you? Because he doesn't write that about Zechariah or Elizabeth. All of that is inconsequential to Luke. And I might add that this is all under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All of it is inconsequential to God. The only thing that God is concerned about with Elizabeth and Zechariah is the same thing God is concerned about with us. And notice at the end there of verse, or at the beginning of verse 6, and they were both righteous before God. Can Luke say that about you this morning? Can Luke say that about me? That we're righteous before God? That we walk blameless in his statutes and commands? You see, we strive after all this other stuff that seems so important to us. But what really matters in this world is our relationship with God. And it doesn't mean we can't strive for different things. Please don't get that. I want you to be the best that you can be in the world of business, the best you can be on the playing field, the best you can be, whether at work or at play. But don't ever think that that trumps your spiritual walk with God. No doubt, Zachariah and Elizabeth were wonderful people who did wonderful things, but the only thing at the end of the day that mattered is what they did for God. And so we are told that these two people were righteous. This word righteous, we, we heard just a couple weeks ago, it's the word amemtos. And amemtos, the root of amemtos is used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, when it says that Jesus Christ was a lamb without blemish or defect. He was the righteous one. Now wait a minute, why in the world would Luke say the same thing about Jesus as this unblemished lamb as he would about Zechariah and Elizabeth? Well, right before we start putting them into sainthood, right before we start building statues to them, we need to be reminded, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that Zechariah and Elizabeth, though they were called righteous, were sinners. They were sinners like me. They were sinners like you. They were sinners like the person sitting next to you. We all have sinned. So what in the world is Luke saying when he says that they were righteous? There are two things I want you to see about their righteousness. Number one, they dealt with their sin. Luke tells us they are righteous. And one of the reasons, first of all, why they were righteous has nothing to do with what they did, but they are righteous because of the amazing grace of God. God saved them. God put his saving love upon them. God showed them his grace. But as just as we're learning in 1 Peter in our study there, that it's not simply good enough for us just to bask in, in the grace that was done once and for all, but that our obedience to that salvation would lead to obedience to the truth in the here and now. You see, some of us are banking on what we did as a little kid in Awana, and we're not living for Christ right now. They were righteous not because of what God did in their life. That's part of it, and that's a good portion of it. But it was lived out. That grace that they received was lived out in, as Peter says, the obedience to the truth. So it wasn't just positional. It was practical. They were walking in the ways of the Lord. What does that mean? What it means is Zechariah and Elizabeth, but we're going to focus on Elizabeth this morning. She was a sinner. She failed God and she failed her fellow man. But righteous people hate sin. And no doubt Luke writing this and the Holy Spirit allowing him to write these words 
says that Elizabeth dealt with her sin. When she would fall to sin, Elizabeth was quick to make right. She recognized the grace of God was not a license to sin, but it was a great opportunity to glorify God in all that she did. And so she would seek forgiveness quickly, not only of God, but of her fellow man. She hated sin. As a righteous individual this morning, do you hate sin? John Owen, the great reformer of Scotland, said that he mortified sin. He wanted to put to death sin in his life once and for all. A righteous person, even though they sin, hate the very sin. They hate the stench of sin. Sadly, in my life, I coddle my sin. Like a little pet, I sit there and I, I, I massage that and I, I pet it and I give it what it's needed. And I, and I love it and I make sure it has all that it needs because I love my sin. I love it. I don't hate it like I need to. I don't mortify it like I need to. And a righteous person is quick to deal with their sin because they hate it. They're quick to understand that sin is an affront to a holy God. And so she hated her sin. But notice that this righteousness also was lived out in how she served. How she served. Notice the last part of verse 6. Speaking of Elizabeth and her husband, it says that Elizabeth was walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of God. I want you to see a couple things. First of all, we are told in verse 7 that they are an older couple. The King James Version does the best job of all of translations dealing with their age. The King James Version translates it that they were stricken with age. And that's what the Greek is getting at. They are old. They're not run-of-the-mill, middle-aged old. They are really, really old. You know you're stricken with age when you get up and your bones hurt. That before you can even get to the bathroom to brush your teeth, you're ready for a nap. That is the kind of oldness we're talking about. They're old people. They are about the oldest people around. And what I want you to see is that amidst their great age and their strickenness to that age, these people weren't people that were calling it quits and retiring. These people were walking. That word walking is translated very well because it's found in the present tense. They were in the ongoing process, even in their old age, of walking blamelessly before their God. And what a reminder for us, whether we are 10 or we're 110, that all of us are called to a life of holiness. No matter what age we are, no matter what we're stricken with, God doesn't give, if you will, exemptions to his call to holiness. You know, some of us, and, and I've done this before in my life, where I've served the Lord in seasons of my time, and I say, you know what? I've been holy enough for a long enough period of time. Now I'm going to take a break. Holiness is not something you put in the bank account in your holy days to withdraw on your unholy days. But each and every day, Elizabeth got up when she was young and even when she was old, and she said, I will be holy just as my Father in heaven is holy. And brothers and sisters, that needs to be a reminder for us we are to be in the process of continual and ongoing walking in the holiness of God. It needs to be continual. Now notice, they served God. I want you to write this down. It's not in your outlines, but I want you to see that they served God privately. They served God privately, and they did it well. With regards, it says, to walking blamelessly to the commandments. Luke says that they were blameless. The word commandments is speaking of personal obligations. Their personal walk with God was one that was done in a blameless way. When nobody was around, when no one was looking, when they didn't have to give an account to another human being, they walked blamelessly before their God. But notice as well that they served well publicly. They served well publicly. It says that they walked blamelessly in the commandments of God. That was between them and God, but also in the statutes of God. What that was, was that which you did in community with others. The people of Israel were called to live by the commandments in their private life, 
and then by the statutes in their public life. And so this is, if you will, one of the statutes of the Lord. God's people gather together, and they pray together, and they praise together, and they hear the preaching of God's word together. So Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't just good at showing up to church and doing what everybody told them was important for good God-fearing Jews to do, but they did it at home as well. What a rebuke for many of us today. Can I tell you, my life as a preacher is very easy behind the pulpit. It is really easy to get up here and preach. It's really hard to live on a random Tuesday. It's real easy to publicly sing hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's really hard to do amidst a bunch of unbelievers in the world around us. But Zachariah and Elizabeth did those both very well. And we're called to do the same thing. Our holiness isn't found in what we do on Sunday morning. It is found in what we do every minute of our day in every way that we live. Holiness needs to be a part of it. And Elizabeth got it right. She walked blamelessly before her God and before her fellow man. Now notice we see that we have a a couple, a woman who is honest. She's transparent. She's a woman of integrity. And what we begin to do right away is we begin to think, well, of course, this woman is so great, so wonderful, and all of that, that then she would then be one who would have God's blessing in all facets of life. But notice that there was great disappointment with life. Notice that this morning. There was great disappointment in her life. Right when you think that everything's looking good, that Elizabeth and Zechariah have got everything going right for them, Luke adds a word, notice verse 7, but we go from the great places of seeing some great things happening in this couple to a place of great despair. What's wrong? What's the problem? And notice that all was good spiritually didn't mean that everything else was good. Some of us think that if we really are spiritual, then God will take care of the rest. And he does, but we begin to think that if I do it right spiritually, then everything in my world will be ordered just as it's supposed to. And that's not the case with Zechariah. I love how honest the scriptures are. It never paints a picture that looks really good on paper and then doesn't live itself out in life. That we honor God and then God just takes care of all the rest and we live happy and healthy and and lives full of money and possessions. That's not what is true in our Christian life. We know that though we serve God, great disappointments come. Some of you have raised young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Only for them at the age of 18 or 19, as soon as they're able to be on their own to walk away from the Lord. Great disappointment. Some of you have served God and honored God in your marriages only to have the love of your life say, you know what, I'm out of here. I don't want any of this anymore. Some of you find yourself serving your company and your employer well with integrity and with a hard work ethic only to hear that right before Christmas there's a pink slip coming. We heard that this week in our campus in Sugar Grove. Or maybe you're headed to the doctor for a routine health appointment and only to hear things like there's no heartbeat or to hear that what you have is inoperable disappointment is true for the life of the believer and the unbeliever alike and we need to understand that because our savior jesus said in this world you're going to have trouble but i'm holy lord jesus was holiness personified and the only thing this world brought was pain and suffering to him anguish, alienation. Jesus must have been terribly disappointed with what he saw here on earth. But he came anyway and he lived holy and we're called to do the same thing as well. But what brought this disappointment to Elizabeth? Notice there are three things. First of all, infertility. Infertility. They had no children, it says. They were without a child. Here's a husband and wife. They love God. They love each other. Then that should equal a child. We know that's not the case. They were without children. And there's great disappointment in the lives of people, even in our church today, who are struggling to conceive of a child. Month after month, trying to conceive can lead to great disappointment. I found this on a blog of a woman who for years has been dealing with infertility, and this is what she says. 
For seven years, my husband and I have been watching and waiting. We began the process of beginning our family back in 2006. We were hopeful that it would only take a couple months. But now we find ourselves six years in the process. We've slowly watched the monthly calendar turn page after page, only to then change the calendar to a complete new year. We've grown weary with all of the waiting. During that time, I have grumbled and complained and blamed God for far too many times to count. I've been on my knees begging him for a child. How long I, or how I have longed Jesus to be on the carpet in my family room with a little baby that I can see eye to eye, that I can hear their laughter, that I can wipe their tears. Will there ever be a little one for me, Jesus? One who will bring me joy and laughter into our home? Why do we have to suffer through these long hours and days and months, and now, Lord Jesus, years? Lord, we want a baby. You know it. We want it so bad. Let us come to know, and this is the heart of Elizabeth in this woman, let us come to know that your ways and your timing is best, even when we don't understand it. Jesus tells us, I'm sorry, not Jesus, Luke tells us that Elizabeth was barren. She would not be the first, nor would she be the last that would deal with this great disappointment. Who can forget Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, and even Hannah from the Old Testament? In each of these instances, it led to a place of great discouragement and disappointment and even to despair. And it was true of Elizabeth, this woman, year after year, waiting for a child for it not to come. But I want you to notice it was compounded because of insinuations. Write that down, because of insinuations. Common in the life of a barren woman was the insinuation of sin. You say, where in the world would you get that? It's a misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 7. God is speaking to his people, and he's saying, if you do what I say, your land and your people will be fertile. If you don't do what I say, your nation will not be fertile, meaning the, the, the ground will not bear fruit. Your uh, um, animals will not bear fruit, and infertility may strike you as a nation. Does that mean there will be no babies born? Of course not. But it does not mean, and please hear me, it does not mean that barrenness is as a result of sin. It was the consequences of a nation, not a person. And yet what happens is that insinuations would come. And here's what Luke does, and I don't understand why Luke does it, but God saw fit to have it happen. Notice what Luke says in verse uh, 7. But they had no child. He could have stopped there. But notice he puts the onus right on Elizabeth. It's because of Elizabeth. She's the problem. She's the one whose body's not working right. And Elizabeth, this godly woman, would hear the snickers of other women and other men as she would walk into public places. Well, there's Elizabeth, good old barren Elizabeth. What did she do during her teenage years? Barrenness was usually viewed as some sort of sexual impropriety as a young woman. And so think of those insinuations, even though she was righteous before her God, women accusing her and men accusing her of wrongdoing. What a life. Here you're serving God, and the only thing you can get is a bunch of reproach. You say, Tim, where do you get that? Notice verse 25. Thus the Lord hath done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. She was embarrassed. She was embarrassed for a sin she didn't commit. And people were cynical, and they called her out as a result of it. Now notice what happens. Elizabeth is pregnant for five months before anybody finds out about it. Why? Could you imagine after all these years, barren old Elizabeth, the one who must have sinned to have been barren, to walk into a community of faith of God-fearing Jews and to say, hey, as an old woman, remember, stricken with age, can I share a praise in her little small group? I'm pregnant. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, you're just, hey, hey, crazy old woman, you're just trying to take that sin off of you. Zechariah, being a righteous and godly man, hides his wife until when she gets into her prayer group and says, hey, I've got a praise. I'm pregnant and you can't deny it. 
I'm pregnant. God has given me a child. My reproach is gone. The final thing I want you to see in this disappointment was insignificance. Who is Zechariah and Elizabeth? Who really cares? They were just a priest and his wife out in the hill country of Judea. Who cares about their problems? Some of you right now are dealing with disappointment and you say, who really cares? Does anybody care that I don't have a job? Does anybody care that we can't have a child? Does anybody care that I don't have a life of happiness, but it's all disappointment? Does anybody really care? And then we look at God and he's not listening. And so we say, well, God, do you really care? And so we have this little couple and it's a whole stream of human beings in first century Palestine. And they're insignificant. And they got this massive problem. And it doesn't seem that anybody cares. The people around them, they're just insinuating sin. God is out there. But what is he doing? And, and so what do we have? We have some insignificant people who are asking for God to do something of great significance. And it brings great discouragement. Practically, I want to help you with something this morning. I want you to see how disappointment leads to discouragement in the life of the Christian. And I want to focus it in on this issue of infertility. So write these things down. What brings forth discouragement from our disappointments? Disappointment is one thing. Discouragement's another. And the first thing is fatigue. Write that down, fatigue. Think about it. Month after month, waiting on a baby, thinking this is the month. I shared this this morning for the first time in public, and I did so with my wife's permission. Since our third child, we have wanted a fourth child. I can't tell you how much we'd like fourth or fifth children. For four years, we have tried, and nothing has come. Can I tell you, it's frustrating. Month after month, waiting for the news. This is the month, Amanda, we're going to have a fourth child. And I know that's a lot to ask for for some who are waiting for their first. I recognize that and know but it gets tiring, doesn't it? Waiting, waiting, moment after moment. And it leads to frustration. God, why aren't you doing this? God, why aren't you answering our prayers? We become frustrated with one another. What's your problem? I don't know. What's your problem? And we become frustrated. Our problem isn't getting any better. It leads to the feeling of failure. We're failures. What are we not doing right? Are we not living holy enough lives? Are we not doing what God has called us to? So we just keep trying harder and harder and becoming more and more frustrated. And then it leads to the feeling of failure and then fear. God, do you not love us? God, have we done something that's taken your love away from us? God, are you bigger than this? And so we see disappointment turn to discouragement. But here's the thing about Elizabeth that I love about Elizabeth. She was able to see God. Amidst her frustration, amidst her fear, amidst her feeling of failure, no matter how tired she was, she was able to see God. And she was able to say what I want to be able to say in my times of disappointment. Lord, whether you give or take away, praise be the name of the Lord. That God, you're good always. That your ways are higher than my ways, God. That even though I think that this is what I need, you know what needs I have better than I do. And to do that, we've got to trust. We've got to trust. And that leads us to one more thing, and that's determination to trust God. Determination to trust God. It's easy in our world to lose trust. It's easy in our world to think that God is busy doing something else or that God has lost control of his creation, that things have run amok. But the believer who builds his faith on the scriptures knows that God is the one who accomplishes all of his plans, and he does them well. Let us never forget that God does all things well. In her times of barrenness, God was glorified. In her times of fruitfulness, God was glorified. In your time of greatest disappointment, God is glorified. And in the time when you are celebrating the greatest points of ecstasy in your life, God is glorified, whether he gives or takes away. And Elizabeth got this, and we need to get this as well, because it enabled her to do some things. You see, there's a choice in our disappointment. We have a choice just as Elizabeth did. The first choice we have is we can get angry, and we can get frustrated, and we can sin against God, and we can do what Job's wife said. 
Remember all the disappointment that Job dealt with? And what does Job's wife say? She's not one of the wise women we'll deal with in this series. She tells her husband, curse God and die. You can do that. But Elizabeth didn't. Elizabeth said, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you, God. And she chose the latter and enabled her to do a couple things. Notice in our text, it allowed her to stay committed instead of giving up. Elizabeth was able to do something that all of us would be good to follow. Without knowing it, Elizabeth lives out Romans 5.3. Paul isn't around at this point. He isn't writing the letter to the Roman church. But Romans 5.3 reminds us that we are to rejoice in our suffering. At no point in this text do we see Elizabeth bellyache or murmur. She doesn't speak ill of others. She does not blame God. She does not even try to make deals with God. She just rejoiced in her suffering and served God blamelessly. Romans 5.3 tells us that suffering produces endurance. And boy, did she have endurance at her age, faithfully serving God. This endurance allowed her to be committed to following God. This endurance led to character. And her character, Paul says, er, Paul says, character comes when we endure in hard times. And she had character. She was upright in all that she did. And it enabled her then, as Paul says, to have hope. You see, suffering is the key ingredient for us having hope. Why do we need hope if there's no suffering? If we have no issues or struggles, we have no hope for tomorrow because we don't need hope. Everything's great. But when suffering is a part of our lives, hope is that which gets us along the way. I don't see it now, Lord, but I hope to see it one day. And so she was able to be encouraged. She was able to continue to be committed. So many of us build our service and our holiness based on, God, what have you done for me lately? Well, God, you haven't done much for me lately, so I'm not going to do much for you. Boy, that's so easy for me to do. God, I'm serving you. I'm running around like a madman trying to do all that you've asked me to do. Can't you just help me a little bit on this thing? Come on. Don't you see what I'm doing? I'm busy for you. And God says, don't you see all that I'm doing for you every single day? That the one thing that I have not said yes to is the one thing you're going to continue to throw in my face? We need to stay committed. Notice we need to also come alongside others to encourage them. Our text says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, visits Elizabeth. And Mary is encouraged by Elizabeth. She's able to rejoice, Elizabeth is, with Mary. To bless God for the blessing of Mary's upcoming birth. She's able to give Mary spirit-filled words of encouragement. She's even able to give a sign to Mary. A sign that Mary, this teenager who is in uncharted waters, think of this. Mary's got nobody else in the world that can identify with her. A woman who has had in her conceived by the Holy Spirit a baby, not ever knowing a man. And so she comes, and Elizabeth is able to say, hey, I've got some words for you. Your cousin Zechariah and I, you know, as good as dead old, we're going to have a baby. And Mary is realizing that nothing is impossible with God. And right when she needed a word of encouragement, right when she needed to know that she wasn't the only one, a miraculous birth was there to show her something great. And Elizabeth is able to say, when I heard your voice, Mary, the baby in my belly leapt for joy. So I know what's going on here, Elizabeth is saying. I totally can see it. You're not alone in this. I'm there with you. I recognize that God is up to something great. And can I tell you, that's the same word for us this morning. In our disappointment, in our trouble, in our pain, what God is calling you to is to be a comfort to others. Write this passage down, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4, let me just read this for us. <clears throat> it says the following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our affliction, 
He comforted Elizabeth in her affliction. And what was he calling Elizabeth to do? What is he calling us to do? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. My mom attended the ladies' uh, Christmas dinner over at Sugar Grove campus on an invitation from my wife. And many of you know my mom uh, lost a 16-year-old son, my brother, an older brother. And you can ask the questions I'm sure many of the parents are asking now in Connecticut. Why, God? Why would you take a son? Why would you take a daughter? And my mom has come to realize the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because sitting at her table was a woman who just recently lost her college-aged daughter to a heart defect. And with tears, she says, how can I celebrate Christmas? How can I celebrate God's goodness? Who can understand the loss of a child? And with those words, my mom could say, I can. I know what it's like to lose a child. And what I know is that God is the comfort. He is our ever-present refuge and strength in times of trouble. So brothers and sisters, whatever your disappointment is this morning, God is calling you into service to comfort and encourage others. To be God's ambassadors to those that find themselves in a hurting world. And finally, one final thing I want you to see is that it, it allows us to be content playing second fiddle. What do you mean by that, Tim? I was struck by this this week. I always ask God when we teach as preachers, you know, Christmas messages are hard. I don't know if you know that. Number one, you guys all know the story. Number two, you've heard every sermon that's ever going to be preached on it, okay? And so I always ask the Lord, show me just something in the Christmas story that I've never seen before. And God is faithful, isn't he? Because this is what I saw. Think about Elizabeth. She gets her answered prayer. She's cooped up for five months, and her first visitor probably is Mary. Boy, do I have a story to tell you, Mary. You're not going to believe this story. Your old cousin and I were pregnant. That's amazing. That's miraculous. Only to have that teenage girl say, well, that's pretty cool. I've never been with a man. And an angel came and said, what is conceived in me is the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. Talk about deflating Elizabeth. I mean, she's just old. And yet Mary's got this miraculous story. And do you hear anything? Look in the text. Do you hear anything of her envy? Do you hear her getting angry? Do you hear her saying, oh, hey, let's talk a little bit more about me, Mary, not so much about you? She doesn't do that at all. She glories in what God is doing. Mary's number one. We can't get around that. Elizabeth is great, but Mary's greater in this headline here. She's going to give birth to the Savior. And Elizabeth is totally fine with that. God, yeah, you've blessed me, but maybe you didn't bless me like you blessed Mary. But that's okay. Notice she says, I'm just thankful to be the one that Mary comes to. Who am I that the mother of your son would come to me? She's just glad to be a part of the story. Are you glad just to be a part of the story? Are you glad just to have your place, as small as it may be, in the great Christmas pageant of Christianity, that your small, little, maybe insignificant life that you and I live, that we're a part of the family of God? And here's the amazing thing. I always love how these things connect in Scripture. Not only did Elizabeth know what it meant to be a second fiddle, but that baby in her womb knew it too because she would give birth to a great man, John the Baptist. And right when John the Baptist is at his height of great notoriety, he would see Jesus. And he'd say, hey, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And he would say the great truth that you and I need to know, and that is that Jesus must increase. And that means I've got to decrease. It's amazing what her son learned of her example and what we must learn as Christians, no matter what part we play, that you and I are called to play a part. And it may not be the star of the show because that's only for one person. That's Jesus. And our job is to play the best part we can amidst trials, amidst difficulties, amidst great hardships. You and I are called to live lives of hope 
and its hopelessness. Let's live out this example for, that Elizabeth gives us. And let's praise God as we do it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I pray that this brings hope to people living in a life of hopelessness. Lord, I don't say that as one who lives my life in hope. I look at the things around me, the things and details that surround my life. And as a preacher of your word, Lord, I find myself far too often feeling hopeless. And Lord, it takes an aged woman who lived more than 2,000 years ago to show me what living with disappointment as a believer is to look like. So Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for us that amidst all the disappointments that life brings, all of the trouble life will throw at us, that we will look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we will look to you who endured such shame and such turmoil and such trouble, and yet you did not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary and lose heart, that we would not forget that you have not put the period at the end of this sentence yet. In fact, Lord, you're going to put an exclamation point when you're good and ready. And that we can put our hope and trust in that the best is yet to come. So, Lord, whatever may be concerning us, whatever may make us anxious this morning, I pray, Lord, that we would cast all our cares and anxieties on you. Because just like with Elizabeth and Zechariah, you care for us. Give us that hope this morning, Lord. Show us that light in this dark world, we pray. Now, Lord, lead us from this place into that darkened world. Let us shine like stars in the sky so that we may share the hope that we have and give an answer to that hope that is found in Christ Jesus. To you be glory, honor, and praise, not only in your church, but in this world, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.